about long-term intravitreal injections that might slow the progression of GA. But could a gene therapy in the pipeline require fewer treatments and still yield results? I'm Scott Krasbanas. I'm here with Greg Notstein, and you are listening to New Retina Radio from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. Dr. Jeffrey Heyer summarized an AAO presentation on the Phase 1 data covering J&J 1887, a potential gene therapy for geographic atrophy. Was it safe, and were there signs of efficacy? And Professor Michelle Michelides joined us to speak about a gene therapy targeting X-linked retinitis pigmentosa. With a Phase 3 study for the drug AAV5-RPGR already underway, what can we learn from earlier trial results? Stick with us to find out. There are dozens of investigative therapies for the treatment of GA that target the complement system. Given that there are dozens of targets within the complement system itself, perhaps that's unsurprising. The big targets at the moment are C3 and C5 as therapies closest to regulatory approval inhibit those two complement components. But we should remember that other therapies with different targets are in development too, one such therapy, J&J 1887, underwent exploration in a Phase 1 study, data from which were presented at AAO. Dr. Jeffrey Heyer, part of the research team for J&J 1887, is here to tell us about those data. Dr. Heyer is the Director of the Vitreo Retinal Service and Director of Retina Research at Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston. Dr. Heyer, welcome to New Retina Radio. Thank you, Greg and Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. J&J 1887 targets CD59. Where exactly does CD59 fit into the complement system? It's a great question, Scott. CD59 is a naturally occurring protein that inhibits the formation of the MAC, the terminal step of the complement pathway. We believe MAC is a good target for a number of reasons. MAC has been found in Drusen suggesting it has a role in the formation of AMD. And we know that MAC as the terminal step probably plays a role in the dysregulation that we believe to be um, a component of the development of geographic atrophy. And then could you tell us a little bit about uh, J&J 1887 itself? Sure. So J&J 1887 is a potential gene therapy that could upregulate CD59 and CD59, as we talked about, could inhibit MAC formation. To, again, understanding that complement dysregulation is believed to be paramount in the development of geographic atrophy and perhaps other components of AMD, inhibiting MAC formation could help to minimize the development of GA and perhaps other components of AMD, perhaps impacting it even earlier. Some gene therapies are administered surgically, others through the suprachoroidal space. These are all under investigation. How is J&J 1887 a gene therapy administered? So J&J 1887 has the advantage of being administered intravitreally. And the reason I say advantage, obviously, is the ease of administration. Of course, when we think about intravitreal administration, we do... Uh, 
we do think about the potential for intraocular inflammation. And so those are things we watch, and that was the primary endpoint of this study. But it's easy to understand that if we had a therapy that could be safely administered intravitreally, that that would be uh, a nice advantage for delivery. Let's get to that phase one study. Tell us about the design of the trial itself. This was a phase one open label, single center, first in human study in adults with geographic atrophy. The study assessed the safety and tolerability of JNJ 1887 over 24 months. There were three dose cohorts. Dose escalation cohorts were low, intermediate, and high doses. And in addition to safety and tolerability, we looked at secondary endpoints to include change in GA lesion area and conversion from dry to wet AMD. Inclusion and exclusion criteria are important for GA studies. Who was enrolled? So you're right. The inclusion criteria are critical to really understanding uh, what the impact was and what the patient population was. In this study, patients had to have visual acuity of 2080 or worse in the study eye. They had to be 2800 or better in the fellow eye. And the total GA lesion size was from five to 20 millimeters squared, or roughly two to eight disc areas. In this study, all patients had foveal GA. Patients with active CNV or infections in the study eye were excluded, as were patients with GA secondary to non-AMD etiologies. And what was um, somewhat unique for our study is no steroid prophylaxis was used in the study. And this included systemic, meaning oral, topicals, or periocular steroids. When it comes to phase one studies, safety is always paramount. What did you and your colleagues find regarding the safety profile of J&J 1887 at the two-year mark? There were no systemic, no serious adverse events or systemic adverse events related to treatment intervention. There were five instances of intraocular inflammation related to study intervention, all of which were considered mild. All findings of intraocular inflammation related to the study resolved spontaneously or with topical steroids. No study eyes had the onset of CNV or wet AMD. One patient discontinued the study as they died from ongoing leukemia. So there were 17 patients enrolled in the study and none of those developed wet AMD. And what about efficacy? So as this was a safety and tolerability study, efficacy is certainly secondary, and there were no controls in the study. What we saw was GA lesion growth was sim growth rate was similar among all three cohorts at each time point in the study. Although keep in mind, in cohorts one and two, the low and medium cohorts, there were only three patients. In the high-dose cohort, there were 11 patients. At year two, the change in GA lesion area was among all cohorts, approximately 0.5 millimeters squared. And, and I point this out because what we saw, if you broke down the cohort, if you broke down the high dose cohort by six month intervals, 
we saw that each six month interval, the growth rate decreased such that at the last, co last interval, 18 to 24 months, that was the slowest rate of growth. What comes next for this drug, for J&J &J 1887? Well, I think that what we've seen from the safety, the drug is safe and well-tolerated. There, It's hard to say much about efficacy in a small, non-controlled study, but certainly as we talked about that decrease in growth rate over time, we believe that's a signal, um, at least suggestive of efficacy. So we believe further investigation of J&J &J 1887 is warranted, and the plans are for an upcoming phase two study. Dr. Heyer, thank you so much for joining us here on New in the Radio. Always my pleasure. A new investigative treatment for X-linked retinitis pigmentosa was studied in a Phase 1-2 trial, data from which were presented at the 2022 AAO annual meeting by Professor Michel Michaelides. He's with us today. Professor Michaelides is a professor of ophthalmology in the Department of Genetics at the University College London Institute of Ophthalmology and is a consultant ophthalmologist at Moorfields Eye Hospital. Professor Michaelides, welcome to New Run the Radio. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. The study you discussed at the podium examined AAV5RPGR gene therapy. Before we get to the study itself, tell us about the therapy. Sure, happy to. So, so gene therapy uh, to the eye, um, uh, specifically to the retina, is delivered in, in three different ways. It's either delivered intravitreally, subretinally or suprachoroidally. So the uh, the most common route of administration is subretinal. And this is a gene therapy for X-linked RP caused by RPGR, which we're delivering subretinally after a standard vitrectomy. Let's move on to the study, which was called MGT009. Tell us about the study's design. So there were three parts to this phase one, two study. There was a, a dose escalation phase in adults, which was in three doses, a low dose, an intermediate dose, and a high dose. Then the next part was a dose confirmation phase in children. So once safety had been established in the dose escalation, three children received the intermediate dose. And then subsequently, there was a randomized controlled uh, expansion phase where patients were randomized either to immediate treatment to either low or the intermediate dose or to a third arm where uh, treatment was deferred and this acted as a concurrent control with patients then receiving treatment at the six-month time point again either the low or the intermediate dose. Let's talk about safety. What did you and your colleagues find? So generally, the, the safety profile was um, as would be expected in gene therapy and was manageable. We, we had three serious adverse events throughout the course of the study. Two of them occurred in the dose escalation phase, uh, both of them in the low dose, one being a retinal detachment that responded uh, without any sequelae after surgery, and the second being a panuveitis. The third uh, SAE was in the dose expansion phase, and that was of increased intraocular pressure 
which again uh, responded well to uh, therapy. I know the study was not powered for efficacy, but there were a handful of findings regarding function after intervention. How did the research team measure function in patients and what were their findings? Sure, absolutely. So whilst, as you rightly say, the primary endpoint was safety, um, we had multiple secondary endpoints probing uh, visual function, retinal function, and functional vision. And the ones we focused on at the American Academy and which are our most compelling are um, retinal sensitivity measured either with the octopus static perimeter or the Maya micro perimeter. And we saw that both in the low and intermediate dose cohorts, when we pulled that data, there were significant improvements in retinal sensitivity using those two modalities compared to the concurrent control group. In addition, we then went on to do a functional visual assessment to see you know, what, what can patients do with that improvement in their retinal sensitivity. And so we had a large scale mobility maze, so a vision guided mobility assessment. We saw that patients were able to perform that assessment far, far more reliably and competently, thereby demonstrating the impact that these improvements in retinal sensitivity would have in their day to day function. Those mazes are always interesting to me. The videos of patients navigating them are, in my estimation, some of the highlights from talks like this. Tell us a little bit more about the maze and maybe share an example or two of um, what it was able to find. Sure, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And um, that's why I think um, those videos are so important to share to really for people to get a, a very a very obvious, very real demonstration of um, what patients could do before and what they can do afterwards, um, because it's sometimes a little bit abstract to report uh, changes in retinal sensitivity alone. Um, in the real world, you want to know what, what will patients be able to do after they benefit from intervention. So this is a, a large scale maze um, that has multiple different um, configurations and uh, patients are tested under different ambient lighting levels going all the way down to one, one lux, which is twilight. Um, and the patient that uh, we showed in the presentation that you're alluding to uh, received the intermediate dose. Uh, he was in the, the dose escalation phase. And at baseline, it, it took him 62 seconds to get from the start to the exit of that maze. And he made two navigational errors. So errors being when uh, he uh, patients bump into into a into a wall or run their hand along a wall or, or need to be reoriented. So at nine months after treatment, that very same patient was able to get out of the maze, navigate that maze in sixteen seconds, um, and didn't make any errors at all. So real real stark improvement in their ability to um, perform in low lighting levels, which is absolutely something that patients with X-linked RP are very troubled by and do um, repeatedly ask for any type of intervention that might improve their ability to navigate in, in low lighting. So we found that the treatment is safe and there are some signs of efficacy. What is the next step in this research? So given the very promising findings in our phase one, two study, especially based upon the fact that we were able to see a significant difference between the treated patients and a concurrent control group, we've gone on to uh, commence a randomized controlled phase three study and patients are being treated currently. 
and the estimated completion date is October of next year. Professor Michaelides, it was an absolute pleasure having you here on New Render Radio. Thank you so much, and I look forward to coming back to sharing those phase three data. That's it for this episode of AAO 2022 meeting coverage. Thank you for joining us. And if you like what you hear, make sure to download, subscribe, and leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Your peers would greatly appreciate it.